Welcome to episode 35 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Although it is in the same numbered series as all the other episodes in this podcast series, it is not at all the same sort of podcast. This podcast is specifically dedicated to the subject of the current conflict in Ukraine. And it's an attempt to be sort of both informative and cathartic. I have slept badly for weeks. And the first Sunday morning after the Russians invaded, which I believe was on a Thursday, I got so many phone calls from friends wanting a briefing, wanting to know the inside story, et cetera, et cetera, that I didn't have a chance to get out of bed before noon. And I realized that my friends are all relatively well-educated, well-traveled, well-informed. And if there were so many basics that they didn't know, chances are that there are many listeners of this series who also don't know some of these basics. So at the risk of going over stuff that you may already know, I want to start in kind of a random way with talking about why American Jews are so intensely interested in this particular war. And I think that it's a legitimate question, but what you need to know is that whether they're aware of it or not, the vast majority of America's Ashkenazic Jewish community has roots in the space that is today Ukraine. Now, you have to be very cautious because, as you've heard many times before in this series, boundaries change all over Europe. And my father's parents considered themselves Hungarians, were born and raised in Hungary, actually as part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. My grandfather fought in the Austro-Hungarian army during World War I, but his town, which was Ungvar in Hungarian and Ushorod in Ukrainian and Ushgorod in Russian, that's now part of Ukraine. And it's actually closer to the border with Slovakia than it is to the border with Hungary. My mother's parents are from the Odessa region, and both of them grew up thinking of themselves as Russians and as subjects of the Tsar, which they were. But today, Odessa is one of three or four main cities in Ukraine, and it's one of the few that hasn't been seriously attacked yet. The problem is that many of our grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, depending on our age, told us, believing that they were speaking correctly, that they were, quote-unquote, from Russia. But what they really meant was that they were from areas under Russian control, regardless of where those areas are today. And today, many of those areas are Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, but they were once Russia. And so our grandparents or great-grandparents weren't lying. It's just that the boundaries have changed and the rulers have changed. And this change in rulership is actually an important point because it leads to another point. There's a common misconception among American Jews, perhaps among Americans in general, I don't really know, that Ukrainians are terribly anti-Semitic because there's a history of violent anti-Semitism in Ukraine. Well, let me address that right now because you need to know that for most of the past four or 500 years, Ukraine was not independent. 
it did not have a government that made policies that were followed by people in the country. So whatever government policies were made and directed against Jews were, generally speaking, either czarist policies, Soviet policies, or at one point, Nazi policies. And yes, they were carried out with varying degrees of enthusiasm, but there were always also brave resistors who hid Jews, who saved Jews. Ukraine has a very large number of people who were recognized by Yad Vashem as so-called righteous Gentiles, who at great personal risk hid and saved Jewish lives during World War II. So it's sort of a canard to say that Ukraine is a vicious hotbed of anti-Semitism. In fact, it has one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe, and it gave birth to many leaders of Jewish thought, Jewish literature, Jewish poetry, and Jewish politics. A lot of Zionist leaders come from Odessa. And if you go to Jerusalem and look at the street names, Jabotinsky, Chernichovsky, whatever, there's a lot of, there are dozens. They all lived on one street in Odessa called the Street of the Jews. And there are monuments to all of them these days. Now, that was the last third of the 19th century that I was just referring to. If you go back earlier in history, many Hasidic dynasties were born in territory that is now Ukraine. Although, once again, much of that territory was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. At one point in history, it was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. If you take a city like Lviv in western Ukraine, which is where a lot of rescue operations are going on now to get refugees out of the country and into Western Europe and ultimately to Israel. If you take Lviv, it was for many years part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Then it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it had a completely different name. It was Lemberg, and the language was German. Then eventually it became part of Soviet Ukraine and incorporated forcibly into the Soviet Union. And now it is a major metropolis in western Ukraine, conveniently located relatively close to the border with Poland. And to add to the confusion, as if there weren't already enough confusion, many cities changed their names from the official Soviet version, which was usually a Russianized version of a Ukrainian place name, back to the original Ukrainian version. So that's why a lot of people ask, what's the difference between Kiev, K-I-E-V, and Kyiv, which is K-Y-I-V? Well, the answer is very simple. One is Russian, one is Ukrainian. And for a long time under Soviet rule, speaking Ukrainian was punishable by law, and you couldn't teach schools in Ukrainian. I mean, Russians basically tried to stamp out Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture, any sense of a Ukrainian identity. So now cities that used to be, for example, Krivoy Rog or Krivirich or Dnipropetrovsk, which was a mouthful always in any language, is now Dnipro, etc., etc. The difference in Lviv wasn't a big one. It was Lvov in Russian and Lviv in Ukrainian. But in many cases, the change in name makes a city almost unrecognizable as to what it once was during the long period of Soviet domination of Ukraine. 
But it wasn't only under Soviet rule that the Russians tried to eliminate any sense of Ukrainian national identity or distinctiveness. This tradition has deep roots way back in Tsarist time. So you can go back to the 16th century and find treaties that were forced upon Ukraine to recognize Russian superiority, to pay fealty to Russia, to quash any kind of cultural or political independence. And the worst form of this is one that more Americans should be familiar with, but apparently are not. And that was in the 1930s, between the two world wars, Stalin felt that the Ukrainians were getting too headstrong and showing too much restiveness and questioning Soviet superiority. So he decided to induce an artificial famine in the very country that was the breadbasket of the former Soviet Union. Ukraine is famous for its so-called black earth, which is extremely fertile, especially as regards grain crops like wheat and rye and things like that. So Ukraine really was a breadbasket for the whole czarist empire and beyond until Stalin put into place policies that stopped the production of grain and caused an artificial famine, which at its height in the 1930s was killing 25,000 Ukrainians per day of starvation. So this was sort of Ukraine's holocaust, if you will. The capital of evil was Moscow, not Berlin. The personification of evil was Stalin, not Hitler. And the agent of death was starvation rather than Zyklon B. But ultimately, somewhere between 4 and 10 million people were killed in this artificial famine. And no one is quite sure of how many because all the census records from those years were destroyed by the Soviets because they were so scandalous. But then the next step explains a lot about today's conflict, which is that these dead Ukrainians and their empty villages were replaced by Russians who were forcibly resettled into Ukraine, thus creating whole villages and regions which were ethnically Russian and where the dominant language was Russian rather than Ukrainian. So we still see that today. And many of the, not all, but many of the Russian speakers in Ukraine today are the heirs of those who were forcibly repopulated and resettled in the 1930s. So let me now turn to some questions I hear frequently in various forms. And foremost among them is, why do American Jews care so much about what's going on in Ukraine? I think that I have partially answered that question already by saying that many of us actually have family roots there. And beyond that, as things opened up in the post-Soviet period, people suddenly discovered that they had relatives who they thought had died in the Holocaust who were surviving in Ukraine. So they had cousins there. They had people to go and meet. They had real live connections. So Unlike the implication of many questioners that our reaction to the tragedy in Ukraine is somehow racist because the victims are almost always white and also almost always Christian or Jewish, let me say, if anything, that it's more familial than racial. And let me also dispel the notion that the majority of people being killed or seeking 
refuge, going into exile as refugees from Ukraine, is Jewish. That is not the case. Just as Jews constitute a small minority of Ukraine's population, they also constitute a small minority of the refugees. There have been more than two and a half million people displaced, two and a half million people who have left Ukraine, mostly for Moldova, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, or Poland, because those are the other countries that you can get to by land relatively easily from Ukraine. But only a small percentage of these refugees are Jewish. On the other hand, an outsized percentage of agencies and individuals who are helping to deal with this refugee crisis are, in fact, Jewish organizations and Jewish individuals who have been extremely responsive, in part because many of us have family there, and there but for the grace of God go I. If my grandparents hadn't left that country, I could be a refugee today. But apart from that, Jews have an imperative to be kind and welcoming to strangers because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. And this is an instruction repeated dozens of times in the five books of Moses. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember what it felt like to be an outsider, to be essentially homeless, to be a refugee, and treat new refugees accordingly. So a wide variety of Jewish organizations are doing amazing work, not only inside Ukraine, but also in the neighboring states in terms of welcoming refugees and taking care of them and helping them move onward, whether to Western Europe or to Israel or to any other destination. I can't give you an exhaustive list, but I will say that among the many organizations doing great work in and around Ukraine are the Joint Distribution Committee, Chabad, the Jewish National Fund, the reform movement. The list is endless. And there are so many stories, touching stories, really, of individuals. Let me give you two, both involving people that I know, at least vaguely. One is a Chabad rabbi who used to be in Donetsk until the fighting there in 2014 forced him to move to Kiev, where he continued his work. And recently... This guy, in the middle of all the horrors of what was going on in Kiev while bombs were dropping and shells were exploding and hospitals were being blown up, somebody runs into his shul and says, Rabbi, please help me. My car is empty. There's no gas at any of the gas stations in the area. I just want to save my family. So the rabbi, without hesitating, hands the guy his keys and says, here, take my car. It's got a full tank of gas. Take your wife and children to safety. And the man, overcome with emotion, not believing this act of generosity and bravery, says, what about you and your family, Rabbi? The rabbi says, I'll figure something out. Don't worry. Now go save your family. Another story, slightly less dramatic, but in some ways even more moving, is a reform rabbi friend who recently joined a mini mission to take medical supplies to a refugee processing center in Warsaw. This is one of the biggest refugee processing centers in the world, and hundreds of people arrive daily to Warsaw. And while this guy is there, and I, I knew him in Israel when he was doing his rabbinic training, and then part of that consisted of a short stint as a reform rabbi in Kiev. And during that time, he actually met family members who survived the war, and he became acquainted with lots of cousins. And while he's in Warsaw in this very short mission, 
Who does he encounter but two of his second cousins? What a tearful reunion and what a miracle that out of all the two and a half million refugees who came out of Ukraine to many different cities and many different border towns, these two happen to be in Warsaw at the exact same time as their cousin. So two last points. When we talk about this incomprehensibly large number of refugees, which is only going to grow in the coming days. It's two and a half million so far. Chabad itself is responsible for bringing out 1,500 busloads of people from various parts of Ukraine. And as Chabad has said many times, it's our rabbis who will turn the lights out after the last Jew has left. They won't be the first to leave. They will be the last to leave. There are, thank goodness, Many organizations working with refugees who feel the exact same way and who act on the exact same principle. But there is a question that is often asked of, well, how many Jews are there in Ukraine today? And the answer varies, unbelievably, from like 30,000 to 600,000. And there's a lot of reasons for that variance, one of which is recent history. In Soviet times, it was career suicide to admit you were Jewish if you didn't have to. So many people who knew they were Jewish but didn't necessarily practice Jewish lives and who weren't necessarily affiliated hid their Jewishness, even from their own children, so that they wouldn't have to bear the burden of what being Jewish once meant in that part of the world. Well, fortunately, it no longer means the same thing And Ukraine is the only country outside of Israel that has both a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, which is pretty amazing when you come to think of it and has to make you question the reputation of Ukraine as being so terribly anti-Semitic. The current president won his election by 73% of the vote. And that's a pretty amazing majority in an election that was free and fair and very widely monitored. So the Ukrainian cities that I've been to most often are Kiev, Lviv, and Odessa. I've been to others. I've been all over Crimea. But those are the ones that I know as cities. And those are the ones where I've had a chance to ask Jewish officials how many Jews live here. And in Kiev, the answer was very clear. Somewhere between 20,000 and 400,000. It depends what criteria you use. If you use Hitler's criteria that somebody had, you know, one Jewish great-grandparent and therefore they deserve to be gassed to death, then there's 400,000 Jews. If you use a strictly orthodox Jewish criterion of, is your mother Jewish, the answer is somewhat smaller. And if you use a criterion of how many have registered with the Jewish community and are self-proclaimed members of that community, then the answer is the smallest end of that range. But let's take the city that used to be Dnipro-Pietrovsk, which is now Dnipro, and has the largest Jewish community center in the world. This is a mega skyscraper that has a hotel and restaurants and mikvehs and all kinds of things in it, is a multi-story building, and serves what is described by Chabad as the 50,000 Jews of Dnipro. Dnipro is far from being the largest Jewish community in Ukraine. And if there are 50,000 Jews there, there are easily 500,000 Jews in the, in, the rest, in the country as a whole. One last point, for reasons both positive and negative, the role Israel plays in any international crisis, any conflict, any UN vote is always scrutinized intensely and 
probably given more attention than it deserves. But in this case, Israel has drawn special scrutiny in part because Zelensky keeps asking it to mediate and it does have relatively good relations with both sides of this conflict and it has very large populations of both Ukrainian Jews and Russian Jews in Israel today. But it did not cover itself with glory in the early days of this conflict, A, because it didn't join the West in imposing sanctions on Russia, it didn't announce a clear opposition to the war, and its position on taking in Ukrainian refugees was ambivalent. Uh, There is a law in Israel that some of you may know about called the Law of Return, which says that anybody who's Jewish has a right automatically to go to Israel and claim citizenship there. Israel for a while seemed to be suspending that law in the case of Ukrainians because it was too hard to prove that they were really Jewish or some other excuse. And the fact is that many nations are taking Ukrainian refugees regardless of their religious background, and Israel should be as welcoming of refugees as anybody else, not less. So that alone got a lot of scrutiny. Now, much later into the conflict, like two or three days ago, Yair Lapid, who's scheduled to be the next prime minister of Israel and is now the foreign minister, said that we've been on the wrong path here and this ends today. Any Ukrainian refugee who wants to come to Israel is welcome and we will do a better job of being true to our heritage. The other point about Israel is that it hasn't gotten involved militarily in the conflict in any way on either side, but it just recently decided to send one of its famous field hospitals, which are the best in the world, to an area between Lviv and the Polish border to deal with medical trauma. And these field hospitals are usually sent by Israel to natural disaster areas to participate in the relief effort after an earthquake or a typhoon or a flood or whatever. In this case, it is sending this hospital that's valued at like $7 million to an area that is historically very Jewish, but to serve any patients who need medical attention. And it is naming this hospital after Golda Meir, who was herself a Ukrainian Jew who spent part of her childhood in Milwaukee and then became the person who is arguably Israel's most successful prime minister ever. With that thought and with that sort of mixed bag of hopefully helpful facts, I'm going to leave you and I'm very hopeful that the next episode of this podcast series will be a more normal one rather than this special edition. Thank you for your attention, and I hope you join me in praying for peace and well-being for all our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. 